You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey everybody, welcome to our podcast, which today is entitled, A Gentle Reminder That the Old Testament is Part of Our Bible and You Can't Avoid It. And our guest today is Brent Strawn. He is a professor of Old Testament at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. And Jared, what did you think? Well, I always appreciate when we have guests on the show who are just very articulate. And he could recall a lot of quotes and uh, he's just a real sharp person who is trying to nuance a lot of things that we were kind of throwing back on him. So, I appreciated that and I appreciated his love of St. Augustine. So. A geek who can communicate. I know, it's, it's a, a rare, rare thing. thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah. And Brent's a great guy. You know, what I got out of it was, I mean, there's a lot that I appreciated about our discussion, but I think for me the big takeaway was how the Old Testament is really, and the Bible as a whole, is a book that's really meant for adult reading and adult consumption, and it's worthy of our adult attention and not coming away with simple lessons like moral lessons, for example. It's, it is actually very complex, and the history of Christian interpretation, let alone Jewish interpretation, just bears that out. People have been pouring over this stuff and thinking through it and working through some of the difficult passages that we sort of got to as well in this sign with Brent. Yeah, and I think having, for me, coming away feeling like, yeah, reading this Bible is hard work. And just like anything that's valuable and worthwhile, we put work into it and we take the time to learn the tools. Not that we should be discouraged, we don't have to be Bible scholars, only that we have to be intent and engaged and kind of grow up and cut our teeth on the fact that this is a pretty complicated book and it's a masterpiece, lots of literature, lots of different kinds of writing. And if we're going to read well, we have to at least understand some of that. And a lot of this came out of Brent's recent book that came out last year, The Old Testament is Dying. A Diagnosis and Recommended Treatment, a great title. But anyway, we had a great time, so let's get to it, Jared. Let's huh? do it. If, say, someone's upbringing in church is an exercise in the studious avoidance of the Old Testament, and also a studious avoidance of all difficult texts in the New Testament, then what you have is a very sanitized, positive Bible. Then if things do come up from the Old Testament, the violence issue is a major point of contention and concern, and you don't have any other knowledge about the Old Testament, then it's easy to sort of pit the Testaments together. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, hello, Brent. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. One question we like to start with for our really smart Bible people on the podcast is, you, you do this for a living, day in and day out. At some point, you decided, hey, I just want to study the Bible all day long. So, can you tell us a little bit about how that journey began for you? How did you come up? How did you get introduced to the Bible? And how did that lead to wanting to do this for a career? 
Yeah, what went wrong? <laughs> yeah, it goes it goes way, way back, Jared and, and Pete. You know, the Bible geek goes deep into my past. Well, th- this isn't therapy, so yeah. don't go too, too, too just get far. Get on with it, Brian. Not Come too on. far back or too it, deep. It does start with my parents, though. So I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know, I, I was raised in a Christian household with two parents that were deeply involved in local church ministry in various ways, and also in Christian higher education. And neither was ordained, but my but my mom's dad was. He was a home missions pastor. So I, I was kind of raised around the church and at a young age felt a call to ministry. I, I thought for a long time that that would be parish ministry. So I went to college. I was a religion Bible major there and took my two years of Greek and uh, my senior year I mean, only Greek was offered. This is maybe not a surprise, but something that maybe we should come back to later. <laughs> but well, in, uh, yes. <laughs> in any event, the senior year, my Greek professor drummed up enough folk to uh, launch a Hebrew class, and I had the choice between Hebrew or systematic theology, and I chose as one might say, rightly, in this regard. <laughs> and and the, the choice was a fateful one. And uh, he also then encouraged me to write a, a thesis project and to write it on the prophets and to try to use my fledgling Hebrew in that. And I kind of fell in love with the footnote and on a whim applied to a number of different seminaries. I, I was planning on going to one, my denominational seminary, uh, but got into a couple others. And they helped me out financially, so I gave it a go and found myself at Princeton Theological Seminary uh, with one of the best Bible faculty in the country at that time. And my Old Testament faculty members particularly, just they just drew me in. And uh, so slowly in that process, I realized that my call to uh, Christian ministry was not solely to parish work, but to uh, Christian higher ed. And, and that's where I've that's where I found myself for the last 20 years teaching uh, seminary students. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's that's a really interesting journey. So, what your is your denomination the Presbyterian? No, no. I was raised in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a small offshoot of the Methodist Church at the beginning of the 20th century. And I was ordained in that denomination, but four or five years back, I did transfer my ordination to the United Methodist Church, and, and that, I'm an, an elder in that in that yeah. denomination. Well, okay, so you are really into the Old Testament. <laughs> totally. I hear. <laughs> that. Yeah, all that Hebrew geeky stuff, you sort of geeked out about it. You know it. And you, you, we alluded, you alluded to something about how only Greek was offered and not Hebrew. And you said, we'll talk about that later. So, let's talk about that now. <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh, that, that's, I'm, I'm guessing that from your point of view, that is indicative of a larger problem. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, 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 it's, it's a problem, but also in my in my experience, it was also kind of a roadmap, right? I mean, I think I ended up in Old Testament not solely because of how fantastic my profs were at Princeton, but also because the Old Testament was kind of the undiscovered country, you know, growing up. I, I suspect, I, I don't recall precise details now, but I suspect I heard it fairly infrequently from the pulpit in my upbringing and all my profs in undergrad who were fantastic and who taught me Old Testament classes alongside New Testament classes were all PhDs in New Testament, not not Old Testament. So I think on one hand, I was pragmatic about it. Maybe if I got a PhD in Old Testament, I could get a job in my denomination. <laughs> but <laughs> You know, Brent, I had the same advice was given to me in seminary. Basically, Trevor Longman, who, you know, a friend of mine who's one of my professors said, you know, listen, Pete, yeah. the Old Testament's like four times the size of the New Testament. There you and go. There are four times as many jobs. So, but it also, I, just like you, I had a similar experience with a teacher just saying, there's so much here. Of course, there's not that many more jobs, though, right? Not anymore. I know. This is 30 years ago. And the push comes to shove, there's going to be the, the, the Christian communion favors the New Testament materials. So... So that's the my little line about Greek. I I, I think it's a kind of built in, rightly or wrongly, uh, to favor the New Testament. To if there's going to be Hebrew, uh, if there's going to be biblical languages offered, it's going to be Greek, not Hebrew. And if there's going to be a requirement for a biblical language, it's going to be Greek. So you know, I had to take two years of a biblical language in my undergrad. That was what the catalog said. But in practice, the only one that was offered for two years was Greek. So, just getting a little bit more, Brent, into the topic, we have, I'm just going to jump right in with what I find a conundrum in the church when it comes to to the value of the Old Testament for Christian faith and practice, and that's often this dichotomy. I've seen a lot of churches where they take the Old Testament 
maybe very literally, and end up with some interesting practices or interesting conclusions around morality and ethics. And then I've seen a lot of churches who, they don't want to do that, so then they don't know what to do at all with the Old Testament. They they just dismiss it. They really don't talk about it. They don't read it. They don't use it. And I think you referenced that, that we sort of privilege the Old the New Testament. And so, I'm interested to know, in, in, as you think about the value of the Old Testament, what, what does that mean in the face of what I see as a lot of this dichotomy of, well, we if we take it seriously and we do engage it, we end up with these, maybe some would say, like, well, we don't want to end up with this kind of ethic or morality, taking it literally, and so we just dismiss it whole cloth or just kind of ignore it because we don't know what to do with it. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question, Jared. And the way I think about this issue more broadly of late and maybe I should say why, how I thought about it differently initially when I started teaching. But, I, but how I think about it of late, though, is that really we have to continue to press the point that, to quote John Don, you know, from two testaments grow one scripture. That the Bible is a two-testamented reality. And therefore, whatever one does or whatever one feels like works with the New Testament, you know, that also works for the Old Testament and can work for the Old Testament. So, I, I think one of my early memories as a child and around the physical reality of the Bible, apart from the fact that I had some, you know, that I loved and always thought were, were kind of precious items to have, was my dad's New Testament only Bible right? And thinking, oh, that's kind of cool. And only later realizing how odd it is in a way that we would have New Testament only Bibles. And for the most part, Christians would never have Old Testament only Bibles, you know? Yeah, that would be Jewish. <laughs> that would be Jewish. That's right. I think. <laughs> that's right. If I remember my seminary training, I think. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, I have a, you know, I have my Hebrew Bible, you know, I take it to church with me, you know, as mostly as a sign of protest. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, is that, <laughs> is that if it works for the New Testament, it can also work for the Old Testament. So, for some reason, that dichotomy that you you mentioned, Jared, is in the kind of warp and woof of contemporary Christianity in lots of circles. I'm not completely sure where it came from. I mean, there's there's antecedents and there's precursors that we could point to, but it seems deeply ingrained. And of course, I know historically it goes way, way back to the second century, at least, but it's it's also something that has to be actively resisted. And one of the ways that you resist it is just by not granting its validity at all. So, in fact, Christians have one Bible. Uh, maybe there's two Testaments. Uh, maybe there's a first part, a second part, a first Testament, a second Testament, an elder Testament, as, as uh, Chris Seitz has recently dubbed it. But in any event, whatever works for the New Testament in terms of habits of Christian faith and practice, the reading of it, those work exactly the same way for the Old Testament, and they have for thousands of years, according to the witness of the church. What do you mean exactly the same way? Because I, th- I can imagine some listeners wondering, like, flesh that out a little bit. Help us understand what you mean by that. So, I think I'm imagining kind of a stereotypical reader, Christian reader, well-meaning, more interested in the New Testament than the Old Testament, partly because it's the undiscovered country, right? And and this particular Christian never hears much from it in the pulpit or gets read to from it in the in church or sings songs based on it, etc. But they think about the New Testament in very kind of pietistic, positive ways. The New Testament speaks to this person. It's an, it's an immediate address from God to them. So also, it can be in the Old Testament. I'm, I've had people say to me, for instance, you know, Christians, well-meaning ones, you know, the Old Testament is someone else's mail. To which I replied, Oh, so you're living in Corinth these days? <laughs> we we don't live in Corinth either, but we, we read Corinthians as if it's addressed to us. And we can read the same uh, way the Psalms or Job or, or Joshua or Leviticus. So, this kind of this is a disposition towards the text. This is kind of how I speak about it in my class. It's a disposition towards the text that looks to it as a, an address from God to us. Now, there's all kinds of things that have to be said about that, all kinds of qualifications that might need to be taken up in terms of the antiquity of the material and how it plays out in modern contexts and so on and so forth. But I really like how Ellen Davis puts it, and, and that is that she says that the, the best kind of attention that we pay to, to the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is to treat it 
as what she calls an urgent speaking presence exercising salutary pressure on our lives. And I think that's right on, and I think that's how a lot of Christians or most Christians think they think about the New Testament, but for some curious reason, they don't about the Old Testament. Okay, so say that phrase again. Yeah. And un- unpack some of the big words in there. What, is that, what does that phrase mean? So it's an urgent speaking presence exercising salutary pressure on our lives. So first, it's, it's urgent. It's, a, it's the Bible is a speaking presence and it's urgent. It's an urgent speaking presence. It, it needs to be heard. It's, it's not there whenever you want it. It's actually wanting you to be obsessed with it and, and to com- keep coming back to it and, and to be engaged with it. So it's urgent it's speaking. It's, it's the word of God, right? That, that whole nomenclature found in Christian theology is, is, uh, expresses the, the Bible's communicative function, that it's wanting to communicate with us. And it's a presence then in our lives. And then it exercises salutary pressure. It's, it's trying to pressure us in the best ways not the worst ways. And this, this pressure is salutary, it's positive on our lives. So, you know, to go back to your initial allusion, Jared, to maybe certain communions that might take the Bible, Old or New Testament, in kind of odd ways, and maybe ways that might be deleterious, you know, negative in some ways, you know, what Davis's little statement there says, well, that's, that's, that might not be right, because that wouldn't be exercising salutary pressure. That would be exercising malevolent or negative pressure of some sort, detrimental pressure, unhealthy pressure. And instead, we need to think about the Bible as exercising this positive pressure on our lives. To kind of allude to St. Augustine, he, he said, you know, the best interpretation of Scripture eventuates in greater love of God and greater love of neighbor. And if it doesn't eventuate in those two things, it must be a poor interpretation of Scripture. Uh, yeah, I love that. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I appreciate that. When I read that, and it felt so foreign to read most of the rest of Augustine and also have him say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, and then you never know if you should say Augustine or Augustine. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, <laughs> depends on if you're from Florida. You know what? So, you know what's funny is I think in seminary that was actually a point of contention or maybe an <laughs> undergrad. We, we, I remember having an actual debate on whether we should pronounce it Augustine or Augustine. So It seems to me a crucial point of orthodoxy in my judgment. Well, eventually there should be a denomination based on it, I'm sure. <laughs> we're the Augustinians. Well, we're the Augustans. Augustinians. <laughs> Augustinians. <laughs> There's a church ready to split over that right now. Yeah, kids, don't try this at home. This is a ridiculous discussion. So. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants? and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you, for service and for leadership. 
Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing you, Brent, and I think I agree with you with a problem of really not knowing what to do with the Old Testament in many, I mean, I teach it too, and in many quadrants of Christianity today, and maybe ignoring it or implicitly thinking it's just not worthy of attention. But the, the conundrum that a lot of people experience, and you know where this is going, okay, I'm going to pay attention to it, I'm going to start reading it. And like some of my Episcopalian friends have said to me when they started reading the Bible for the first time, uh, they get to chapter 6, right? And, and they see a lot of people dying, and that theme sort of keeps up in certain parts of the book. And even things like the Midianite women and numbers divided among the Israelite soldiers and priests. And, you know, I look at that and I say, that's the kind of question that a lot of people raise very quickly. And, you know, to say that in, you know, in theory, we, we handle it as we would the New Testament. But in other words, there's a reason, I think, why people have a hard time wrapping their arms around the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, how, how do you, I mean, this is, this is not something we can settle in, in three seconds, but how, how do you handle some of these passages of, let's say, the kind of violence that we would probably never condone today? Sure. What, what do we do with those? Help people understand how they can respect the Old Testament, but also, you know, not say, yeah, we have to do this or something. Well, I, I'm glad you just go with the easy questions, Pete. I appreciate that. <laughs> I keep, that's the question I always get. So, why shouldn't you get it? No, that's right. Well, you know, I think there's some clearing of the ground that has to be done on these questions. And, and one such piece is that these questions often come to us by people who are well-meaning, who think that they know the New Testament and how it can draw a, a hard distinction between the New and the Old Testaments on such points. But in fact, they can't. You know, I mean, it, it actually betrays a, a naivete or ignorance about the New Testament as well. So, my, my idea of the Testaments proceeding together, or a little, to, to use a little neologism, the, the bothness of of both Testaments in Christian thought means not only the good stuff, but also the bad stuff. That is to say, the problem of violence is not restricted just to the Old Testament. It's also found in the New Testament. So, just as one of a million examples, well, maybe not a million, but, uh, you know, <laughs> Acts 5, you know, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where, you know, they don't share their amount of money for the piece of property they sold, and, and what do you know, they get both struck down dead. It sounds a whole lot like Joshua. It could fit just perfectly well in there, or then we could talk about Revelation and its violence and so forth, and wonder if the violence in the book of Revelation rivals or surpasses anything we find in the Old Testament. That doesn't necessarily fix the problem, it just makes it worse, right? But but what it does show is that the problem of violence or, say, the judgment of God, the wrath of God, other such things that especially are hard to hear in some, not all, circles in Christian faith, especially in the first world, these are actually thoroughly, pervasively biblical problems. They are not restricted just to the Old Testament. They are also found in the New Testament, which means that any sort of solution to them has to be also a thoroughly biblical solution, not just a New Testament fixes the Old Testament solution. So, that's, that's kind of clearing the deck a little bit, which I think is important. There's other things that have to be said after that, of course, more, more positively to your question, but, but maybe you all want to feedback on my clearing the deck comment first. Well, I don't know if this is correct or not, so feel free to challenge me, either one of you, but it seems as though maybe there's, what I hear you saying is there's a, a minimization maybe of the violence in the New Testament, and we tend to gravitate 
toward a, an, an overemphasis of that where we don't necessarily balance that out in the Old Testament. And I just wonder, it, there is something, I don't, and maybe it's, maybe it's my own bias and maybe my own filter. I just remember growing up and feeling like the positive, yeah, I think that's good. I think equalizing the negative, but the positive things, that things that feel like they are written to me or more directly applicable, or I see how they're relevant to my life tended to be more from the New Testament, at least as a kid, I think going through seminary and other getting new tools and resources certainly helped that. But I wonder if there's that disproportion or an overemphasis in the violence of the Old Testament and not as much of a recognition in the New Testament, just because I can more easily resonate with the positive stuff in the New Testament. And it takes more work, it feels to me, it takes more work to figure out how it makes sense to me in my life and how does it have value for me as a Christian in the Old Testament. Well, and it might, and that might be very true. On the one hand, I, I think it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if another piece of it, maybe not for you, but for others who feel similarly, is just in fact a lack of exposure to the Old Testament and also to the New Testament. That is to say, again, on this bothness track, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If, say, someone's upbringing in church is an exercise in the studious avoidance of the Old Testament on the one hand, and also a studious avoidance of all difficult texts in the New Testament, on the other, then what you have is a very, you know, um, sanitized, positive Bible. And then if things do come up from the Old Testament, that especially in current culture, uh, seems to be the violence issues a major point of, of contention and concern, and you don't have any other knowledge about the Old Testament, then it's easy to sort of pit the Testaments together. But if we had the similarly kind of positive exposure to the Old Testament that we do the New Testament, and maybe even the studious avoidance of the difficult text like we do in the New Testament, I think we'd have a different kind of experience about the Old Testament. So, for instance, I always think to myself, you know, if every little Christian boy and girl were taught, say, Psalm 100, the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, His faithfulness endures forever and ever. And that was what they were taught every Sunday, and that they were taught that that comes from the Old Testament and from the Psalms, they would have a different experience, I think, than an orientation that's exclusively or primarily to the New Testament, and the Old Testament is only brought up as a kind of foil or bad guy or problem that the, that the New Testament fixes or somehow puts down. And, and there's a million texts like, well, again, not a million, there's a lot of texts like that in the Old Testament, more than, than certainly Christians are, are used to, to thinking. And so, I really feel like this is a matter of exposure and proper education to the full language that is the language of Scripture and its place in Christian faith. So, I do think, you're right, Jared, there's these kind of passages that feel so immediate, but, you know, again, in the history of the Christian church, that's how the faithful have thought about the Psalms. That's how they've even thought about Joshua. So, I hear, I hear you just saying that it's really, if perhaps the filter, so if, we, you know, it, we're, from a young age, we're taught to filter it that way. And, of course, then that gets reinforced as we get older and that becomes what feels more natural to us. That's right. We're going to take a break from the podcast for just one minute to remind you, if you would like to support the work we do at The Bible for Normal People, head over to patreon.com front slash The Bible for Normal People. There you'll find all sorts of ways to support us for as little as a dollar a month and connect with the community there and engage in that conversation. So again, head over to patreon.com front slash The Bible for Normal People. One group we want to recognize from that group of supporters is our producers group. They get on a call with us. They send us feedback throughout the year to really help the show improve and make it what it is today. So thank you to Byron Yates, Darren McKenna, Scott Johnson, Jamila Crook, Rachel Taylor, Albert Glasscock, Mike Hollis, Dorsey Marshall, Tempa Dunn, Crystal Haverson, Mark Hivek, Becky Davenport. We couldn't do what we do without you. So thank you. Now back to the show. I think that a lot of folk, and this goes back to including folk who are tasked with the spiritual leadership of a congregation, but not only congregations, they have family, you know, parents, or, but pastors, and, and not only pastors, but let's, let's put some blame on seminary professors as well. We've, we've kind of created a problem in part by inadequately grasping what the Old Testament is for, or what it does, or, or how it works in, in concert with the New Testament. 
And, um, you know, if one kind of grows up with it, uh, it being neglected or if one grows up thinking that it's primarily a history book, it's kind of a prologue. You know, it's building action to the climax that comes only, only in the New Testament. Then you're, you're creating a felt expectation on the part of readers and also creating a, a situation where you don't need the prologue once you know the climax. So, you don't need to have a two Testament Bible. After all, you can just have a New Testament only Bible. But, hey, you got to throw in the Psalms because, you know, there is, in <laughs> fact, some juice in there that the New Testament doesn't have. <laughs> Proverbs, too. Yeah, Proverbs, if you're like, yeah, if you're really into wisdom, you know, some people are. You don't get a lot of, you can buy a New Testament and Proverbs and Psalms, but you can't buy a New Testament and Joshua. No, it's true. It's just a surprise. Right. We should surprise. we should publish one of those. I don't know. But, you know, Joshua, I don't mean to make light of that serious question you raised, Pete, and, you know, you've, you've talked about this in your own work extensively and, and could wax more eloquently than I could. But I think that the, new, that the Bible, the Old Testament itself is worried about Joshua. I think there's mm-hmm. clues within the Old Testament itself that Joshua is seriously contained. The violence in Joshua is constrained and contained to a kind of a one-time spiel there in the conquest of the land. There's other ways to talk about the conquest problem and so on and so forth, a, a you know, host of ways. But I think that that point is the primary one, that the Old Testament is itself seems to be concerned about that and limits it in key ways. It doesn't take away the problem. The violence of Joshua is still there, but it's also in the book of Revelation. It's also in some of Jesus' sayings, for heaven's sake. And so, it's still there, but it's contained. And that shows that the Bible itself is worried about it and has strategies for how to limit it. And uh, that's a really important thing. And again, a more thoughtful response that's attentive to the entirety of Scripture rather than a kind of a knee-jerk response which says, well, I don't like Joshua because it's violent, but never mind the fact that I watch hundreds of hours of violence for entertainment every time I turn my TV on. (laughs) And we worship our TV, too. Oh, come on. I mean, it's a kind of a disingenuous (laughs) case of projection when we say we don't like violence and we constantly entertain ourselves with it. And we entertain ourselves with a violence that is far more effective, far more brutal, and far more graphic than anything we find in in the Bible. Right. Well, just to back up a second, Brent, maybe another way of putting what I think you're saying is that the diverse voices in the Old Testament itself, there's some type of at least dialogue going on there about things like violence and how to treat the outsider. Yeah, that's right. Right. So, we, we need to remember that diversity that the biblical writers aren't all necessarily on the same page at every point. And they're, I mean, I like the way you put it, something like, you know, they have problems with it or they're bothered by it and they're thinking through it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's still in the Bible, Right? I mean, you still have those passages in the Bible. So, do we just sort of cancel those out, or do they have value for Christian? Well, how do they have value for Christian faith and practice? And I ask it only because that's, I just hear that question a lot. And people really, really struggle with, okay, in theory is one thing, but what do I do with this stuff? Right, right. You know, and, and granted it's in Revelation, but that might be easier for some people to talk about because it's a weird book. True. You know? <laughs> you know, Acts 5, granted, that's <laughs> really weird. But, you know, I mean, you're right about the violence in the New Testament, but it seems to be more pronounced. It seems to be more part of the dominant narrative of the Old Testament. And that may be what bothers people. So, how, I mean, how, as, as a pastor, professor, how do you talk to your students about that, about working through that problem from your point of view? Yeah, so, you know, I, I've, been, I've been using a lot of late this metaphor or analogy of Scripture as being like a language, a grammar for seeing, understanding, perceiving, and negotiating the world. I think every piece of art that we look at or observe and in- includes, you know, movies and TVs and songs and political pundits, all of these are kinds of grammars that are trying to get us to see, negotiate, perceive, and understand the world in their way. So, the Bible is another such entity, a kind of grammar for negotiating life. And what that means then, I think, is that it's difficult to acquire because it's like another language, and acquiring another language is a difficult endeavor. But when we know a full language, we know about 
nooks and crannies of the language that novices don't and newcomers or or people who are just starting out in learning things. We are able to traffic, for instance, in irregular verb forms because they're native to us in a way that they're not to someone who's just learning the language. That is a helpful metaphor for me in thinking about these sorts of quote-unquote problematic texts. I think that when one knows uh, the grand sweep of scripture, or in my metaphor, that it has, a, has an acquaintance with the full range of the language, some of these problems that seem so large are in fact not as large as they otherwise might seem because one knows the whole language and, and knows, as you put it, there's some odd things out there. There's some irregular verbs, some strange texts. But they're still there, so they have to be figured out. And I think that one way they have to be figured out is by not just playing them off one another, but adjudicating among them, you know, deciding which, which is right, as it were, in this particular moment or for this particular task, this pastoral task, for instance. So I have come to believe that people in the first world who are relatively well-off and settled have problems with the cursing psalms, you know, that, that so violently curse their enemies, because it just doesn't seem to us quite proper if we belong to that social kind of status. But if you're on the underside of history, you know, if you're not in the first world and living in the top 10% of the planet, you know, some of those cursing psalms make a whole lot of sense in terms of wanting God to set the record straight and to restore justice and order to the world. Maybe I don't like the imprecatory psalms, in other words, because I'm an oppressor (laughs) and I don't want someone praying such a psalm against me, even though there probably are. Well, you know, with my students, again, this comes up a lot with students and people I talk to, and I, the way I like to put it is that, I mean, if, if ISIS were attacking my village, I might be reading the book of Revelation a lot. Yeah. And cheering for it. Right. Yeah. And and I, and I do think that's a very valuable point, Brent. I think about our own social location, so to speak, and how we perceive the world. And some things are more offensive to us. You know, as, as somebody else said, it's easy to be a pacifist in Indiana, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Exactly the world's right. a big, diverse place, and maybe some of these voices speak to, like you said, different people at different times. Exactly. And Miroslav Vols makes this point very poignantly in his Exclusion and Embrace book. I think, you know, another thing that I would say about this matter is that it's really important to teach people that the Bible's not all just one flat piece of literature. It's, it's not that everything that the Bible says is immediately to be enjoined as a Christian practice. It might be instead there to be grist for Christian reflection on the life of faith. For instance, you know, these seven nations, mighty and more numerous than you, that the Israelites are to dispossess, you know, there's none around anymore. There's no Girgashites and Jebusites and Bud Lights and, you know, all the rest. Well, there are Bud Lights, aren't there? But there's none of these uh, these seven <laughs> nations. Those should definitely be dispossessed <laughs> still today. <laughs> these seven nations don't longer exist. We can't actually, quote-unquote, literally practice those texts when there's no Girgashites. So, what does that mean? Well, in the history of, of interpretation, what that means is that the text is about more than just what it says. So, John Cashin, one of the Church Father says, the seven nations are not just the nations. The seven nations are the seven deadly sins that one has to put away in order to live life in God's promised land. So, this is to move towards a more figural reading or in older terms, typological or allegorical reading that is that is in kind of bad company among historical critics of the Bible, but but not only them, in some ways among regular Christians who've sort of have have been confused about thinking that all truth is a kind of matter of historicity and facticity. And I think it's actually this kind of figural interpretation is suggested and modeled within the Bible itself. And so, you know, we can't go conquer the land anymore. And especially when the Bible itself says we're not supposed to conquer the land anymore. It has been conquered once back in the day. So that means what is this text there for? Well, it doesn't mean just we go out and do it. It must mean that we reflect on it. It must mean that it means more than what it means. Um, 
it's it's not all flat moralistic instruction it's also material for us to reflect on to think about to to wonder about to be grist for moral contemplation and even moral debate well i like this understanding i i like your metaphor of the bible is like learning a language and it it becomes a grammar for how we interpret the world however i i wonder Good. Whenever you're talking about sort of how we grow up and we're grow we grow up without a lot of education about the Old Testament, I think the something interesting about that is most Sunday schools spend most of their time in the Old Testament. At least for me in my tradition growing up, we because all the the fun children like stories with characters and all these things are in the Old Testament. So I wonder what how do you teach kids? You can't expect, I like the language metaphor, it's what made me think of it, is I can't expect a kid to know the English language or irregular verbs or know big words or vocabulary or be able to play Scrabble at the level that I can play it at. Right. So, if the Bible is like that and it takes time to mature and develop these skills and resources and tools over time, what value then does the Old Testament have to children? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question because it is a kind of interesting point that so much a children's curriculum is built around the Old Testament narratives. You know, not so much the poetry, not so much the prophets, but but the kind of famous narratives. If people know as adults some Old Testament stories, it's probably because of that, you know. So, I think in thinking about the metaphor of the Old Testament and the, the Bible as a kind of language, I think if I'm going to take that seriously, which I've tried to in recent years in both my writing and in my teaching, it suggests a seriously graded approach to teaching. So, I'm encouraged by the fact that there seems to be widespread recognition that the Old Testament, too, can be taught to children. My concern is not so much with that as it is with arrested development when they get to be about middle school or high school and we don't actually introduce them to anything further beyond the simple moralisms of something like David equals good king, you know, Abram <laughs> equals faithful father, and Samson equals strong. You know, I mean, these are, these are simplistic things. It's like Dick and Jane ran up the hill. They're true, but they hardly begin to unpack the nuance of these stories, which are, at times quite ambiguous as to their moral import or significance. Is David a good king or not? It kind of remains to be seen. I mean, you kind of have to argue it out, and it depends on the text. Is Abraham faithful? Mm, Most of the time, doesn't seem like it, but in the end, he comes out okay. You know, and Samson, you know, yeah, strong, but mm, kind of a, you know, blockhead, right? So, at some point, we have to figure out, and maybe it's in in the youth ministry, young adult ministry, but also even in the adult ministry, opportunities of churches to somehow figure out how to do a better job scaling or grading our curriculum and our teaching to reach more than just one grade level. This is a difficult task, but, you know, we should take heart because teachers do this every single day all across the world in classrooms, and they also do it in language classrooms. Sometimes there's a student who just can't even get the alphabet down, and there's others who are doing, you know, circles with the irregular verbs. Teachers aren't allowed to ignore the good student just for the poor student, or ignore the poor student just for the good student. They have to work on both levels and all in between. In my own thinking about this, I've been encouraged by the the paradigm offered by, or example provided by Augustine, or Augustine, who uh, preached to packed houses all the time because he was such a gifted speaker. And he frequently filleted his sermons up so that he would, in the same sermon, address part of the sermon to what he called babes in Christ. That's the folk in the, the catechumens waiting to studying and waiting for their first baptism and all the rest. They're just brand new. Then he would say to those mature in Christ, and he'd say this and that to them. And then he'd say, to you pagans, I say this. You know, the the pagans who came in off the street to hear him because he was such a good speaker. I, I mean, he's doing that in his sermons. And it seems to me that oftentimes in our own curriculum in churches or preaching in churches, we kind of 
go least common denominator. And so we miss a bunch of things beyond that. Which is that moralistic reading, right? Yeah, that's right, especially for kids. So what you can get, I think, is arrested development. So you can have 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds that basically have a fourth grade understanding of scripture. And, you know, that's not really cute by that point. You know, it's really, it's not cute anymore to to be using baby talk when you're adult. You know, like Paul said, time to put childish things behind. So, I mean, just, just to flesh that out a little bit, the, I mean, I agree, a moralistic reading is probably the biggest challenge that I have as a teacher of undergraduate students raised with the Bible in some sense. Because, you know, like you said, it flattens out the stories and it really misunderstands them almost. But if you're looking to the Bible to always be that moral, that source of moral information, and then you go to some of those passages like in Joshua or Deuteronomy or other places, you also have to derive moral teaching from them as well. And then, at least this is my experience, they go in one of two directions. This is giving us some positive teaching about how we are to treat people who are other. Or, I'm going to throw all this out the window because it makes no moral sense to me and it's stupid. Right? And that's, that's I, I, I think we're on the same page here, that, that moralism can, can lead to that kind of simplistic evaluation of the Old Testament as a whole. But like you said, it's going to be very hard to do something different. Because flannel graphs are great with Joshua, right? right? <laughs> or the flood. Here, put the little animals on the ark. You know, it, that, those are things that seem to have a lot of action in them and kids like them. But it's, it's like, you know, how do you do this? I think that's, that's, that's a rhetorical question. That, that's a hard question to answer, I think. Yeah, but what you're pointing out is a kind of a simplistic moralistic approach. Not all moralistic approaches have to be simplistic, but simplistic ones actually encourage a kind of either or where it's you're all in in problematic ways or you're all out in problematic ways and i think something like you know this analogy i'm using that the bible's like a language is something far more dexterous i mean poets for instance poets are always our best language users right no no one reads dictionaries or thesauruses except poets you know they're always looking for the right word (laughs) mark twain said the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug you know it's one of his memorable (laughs) aphorisms i'm keeping that one that's a good one but you know the right word you know they're reading dictionaries they're looking for just the right word and you know sometimes poets can use remarkably disturbing language but it's just in this poem and in the next poem, they, they use different language. And to get a big picture on something, you need more than just the one isolated poem. So a poet knows when to bring out the right word at the right time. I think ultimately that's kind of what I want for people to, to be dexterous in the language of Scripture. Not not just the pastors or the education people, but but even average Christians to be dexterous enough that they realize that there's more than one take on this particular subject matter and that they're fluent enough that they know some of those other takes and can begin to think about what they mean in relation to each other and also what they might mean in the moment, episodically, for this particular community in this particular historical location, social location, and facing the particular issue that's facing them. Uh, so, moralism is the problem if it's the only game in town. And, of course, again, in the full, robust practice of the church, it never was the only game in town. It was, at best, just one of four different readings that Scripture might yield to us. Well, Brent, we are coming to the end of our time, but there is just a lot to chew on. I, I did not expect to enter this coming away with so much wisdom from Augustine, just that metaphor of language. There's just a lot going in here. So, thank you so much for coming on. But what can where can people find you online and, and what are you working on nowadays? Well, I'm on the standard things. Uh, so, you know, Facebook and Instagram, I'm Brent A. Strawn, and on Twitter, just Brent Strawn, no, no middle initial. And, you know, there's other things, my faculty webpage that might have links to other media that people could follow up on if they want. Do you ever do fun stuff on Twitter or just boring academic stuff? Oh, it's actually, I, I don't do a whole lot of boring academic stuff in any of my social media. Any so. cat videos or anything? <laughs> no cat videos. I, don't I like cat. cat videos. Yeah, you know, they can be quite entertaining. 
entertaining, can't they? <laughs> well, do, you, do you have any books you're working on or things that are going to be coming out soon or things that you would point people to if they want a little more of, of what you've been talking about here? The uh, language analogy I mentioned is, is a major thing in my book that came out last year called The Old Testament is Dying, a Diagnosis and Recommended Treatment. And I'm following that book up with, with some other projects uh, right now that I hope will be out in a year or two. One is a treatment of, I'm not sure how best to describe it, it's kind of a a biblical theology, but really an Old Testament theology of the Apostles' Creed. So, it's an attempt to demonstrate how thoroughgoing the Old Testament material contributes to that seminal statement of Christian faith, which on the face of it doesn't seem to be much about the Old Testament at all, just the first little bit about God as creator of heaven and earth. So, uh, this is a, a kind of a sequel to my Old Testament's dying book to try to, to now produce a more proactive program, as it were, for education of Christians about the Old Testament and its central, crucial, irreplaceable place in Christian faith and practice. Do you have a title for that? You know, I'm, I'm open, man. You got any good, good titles? Well, I, the I, first one, The Old Testament is Dying. How about The Old Testament's Doing a Lot Better? <laughs> it's not quite... And then you have another one, The Old Testament is Alive and Well. <laughs> A trilogy, a trinity, if you were, yes, if yes. you would, of, of Old Testament books. Yeah, it's 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 still kicking, you know, or bring in the crash cart, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm open to suggestions, definitely. I, I don't know what to call it exactly. The Old Testament and Christian faith is, is about right, but a little bit bland. Yeah, well, hey, thanks again for, for jumping on with us, Brent. It's been a, a good conversation. Hey, appreciate it, Jared. Pete, thanks so much for having me on. You betcha. Thanks, Brent. See ya. All right, take care. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to learn more or hear more from Brent, check him out online. Pick up his book. You can learn a lot. But while you're online, there's one thing you really got to do. It's gotta, exciting, isn't it? it? It is very exciting. You got to go to thebibleforknormalpeople.com front slash store. Store. Because we got a store. We got store. merch. Can they buy food? No, no, not that kind of not store. Not that kind of store? Okay. Not yet. Maybe one day. We'll have a Bible for Normal People grocery store. We'll be like Amazon. We'll, we'll just, be like Amazon. We'll just buy random stuff that doesn't seem to make Power sense. tools. <laughs> but, Tractors. But go there. Pete has been very faithful in repping BN4P. He's got his mug on a lot of our calls lately. He's got his T-shirt. He's polo. got I have the polo a polo shirt, shirt. Excuse which is more me. sophisticated. Excuse than me. T-shirt. Yes, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend. So head there and get some stuff. Buy a lot of stuff. Yeah. You might want to get more than one shirt. You have to do laundry as often. That's a good point. We have onesies. We have baby onesies. Baby onesies. We're we looking have, for adult onesies. We did have legit requests. Many of them. Yes. The first day we launched online for adult onesies. I think people are genuinely From very sick people. Genuinely offended. <laughs> that we did not consider their needs. Yeah, we're looking at Okay, that. you have one more thing you wanted oh, to say. Oh, yeah, just a very quick announcement. Uh, this weekend, I'll be speaking at the Evolving Faith Conference, which is in North Carolina, and that is Sarah Bessie and Rachel Held Evans are organizing this conference. It's been sold out within three days that it began being advertised in the spring, but it is being webcast for a greatly reduced rate, and you can do that pretty much any time. So if you have an inclination, go to EvolvingFaithConference.com, and you can get all the information you need there, and hope you can make it. And if you want to avoid me talking, that's not a problem. Just press pause. And by this weekend, you mean October 26th and 27th. That's exactly is, correct. Is when that is. And that's a Friday and Saturday, if I remember my dates right. Good. All right. We'll check it out and we'll see you guys next time. See ya.